Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja and I am with Georgetown University, George Washington University and the Middle East Institute and joined by my colleague Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and and Dalgo Rohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we are joined by retired Admiral James Fogo, who served as commander of the United States Naval Forces Europe-Africa and commander of Allied Joint Force Command Naples. He's currently serving as the Dean for the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States and was very hard to get, but we're thrilled to have him joining us today. How are you? Julia, I am great. And thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your podcast uh, with such a distinguished group of moderators and academics. So thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. And you're joining us at timely moments because obviously there's a lot going on in the maritime domain, particularly over the last week along the eastern flank. But particularly when we're looking at the Black Sea. And I guess what I want to kick off the conversation with is exactly that. I've seen over the last few days, analysts and pundits talking about a Russian blockade of the Black Sea. And I guess the question is, can we at this moment in your assessment talk about a blockade of the Black Sea? A few days ago, about a week ago, Russia bombed the Ukrainian Danube ports, and that was just uh, across the river from the Romanian territory territory, NATO territory. We had a Romanian commercial ship that got damaged in these bombings. Over the last few days, ships that are navigating on the western side of the Black Sea are navigating as tight to the Bulgarian and Romanian territorial waters as possible, as as close to, to the territorial waters or within those as possible. And we had, for the first time, the Ukraine-NATO Council meeting, and Bulgaria there complained about freedom of navigation in its exclusive economic zone ever since Russia's new warning area that seems to be expanding in the Black Sea. So, Can you help us make sense of how much the maritime security in the Black Sea has changed over the last week or so? Absolutely. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to expand the time horizon back to, you know, the beginning of hostilities on 24 February 2022. Essentially, the Russians attacked, you know, they were unprovoked, obviously egregious activities that have turned into war crimes on the land. And at the same time, activities on the sea, in the Black Sea and in the Sea of Azov, attacking ports, strangulating the port of Mariupol, closing off the Sea of Azov. And that is something I call the boiling frog scenario that was going on for a very long time. And it was hurting Crane because that's a significant port facility that they use to import and export a lot of products. Once the Kerch Bridge was set, gave the uh, Russians a choke point. And frankly, the international community's hands were tied a little bit because that body of water is controlled by a treaty signed in 2003 between Russia and Ukraine. It's a little different than the Black Sea, where we consider that international waters that are administered by the Montreux Agreement and the state of Turkey. So 
once the war broke out and there were attacks both ways, there were uh, seizing islands like Snake Island, which went back and forth between the two belligerents. And ultimately, the Ukrainians currently occupy that island. There were acts of heroism there to defend it. Then we realized that we had a problem with the export of about 40% of the world's grain and sunflower oil, which is used for baby food. It also hurt the Russians because they export fertilizer and grain from the same area. So this deal took place, Black Sea grain arrangement, and it was brokered by the Turks between the Russians and the Ukrainians. And, you know, it was a year ago, August, where I wrote a piece with Dr. Mike Peterson from the Russian Maritime Studies Institute at the Naval War College that talked about the agreement. And we were skeptical that it would last beyond the first 120 days because, as you know, it's renewed every 120 days. And so it it lasted almost a year. But expecting the collapse of that agreement, we asked the billion-dollar question, what's plan B? And if you think about it, since the time we raised that issue in August of 22, we've had a year to think about it. It happened this month, and now we don't have a plan B. So that's why people are hugging the coast inside the economic zone or territorial waters of Romania and Bulgaria. The Romanians have kind of been the host nation for this thing all along. They've had up to 300 ships off the port of Constanta waiting for the rubber stamp to leave the Bosphorus. And that's put a big strain on the on the Romanian state. They deserve kudos for what they've done. They've also cleared mines and they've even lost a, a minesweeper clearing mines and keeping loose mines from penetrating that cordon of civilian ships that are out there that can't defend themselves. So when you say, is there a blockade of the Black Sea by the Russians? One could assume that from what you see in media and what you read about the campaign in the maritime domain. But I want to give you a quote from Admiral Nishpapa of the Ukrainian Navy. And just in the last international issue of the Proceedings magazine, which I love, the Forum for Naval Officers, he said, our vision, you know, for the defense of Ukraine, and he's talking about the maritime domain here, is based on the need to substitute Soviet principles of mass and power with Western principles of quality and necessary capabilities. So what's that mean? What's he done? He has created, and the Ukrainians have created an anti-access area denial cordon around the territory, the territory in the littoral or the maritime domain of Ukraine. So they have lots of mines, they have radars up, they have surveillance, and they have coastal cruise missiles, uh, two of which sank the Russian Black Sea flagship Moskva. And Moskva had every possible defensive capability to defeat those air-breathing, slow cruise missiles, and they didn't do it because they were incompetent, they were overconfident, and they didn't have their radar looking down the threat axis. So the commanding officer and, and everybody on that ship deserved what they got, ultimately lost the ship. So the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians away from Sevastopol and over to Novorossiysk. So I would disagree with you and say, no, the Russians have not established a blockade or complete control of the Black Sea because of these very innovative tactics and asymmetric warfare that Ukraine has adapted very innovatively. And it, let's throw drones into the equation. I don't know if you watch, I watch every Sunday, religiously, I watch Fareed Zakaria on Global Public Square. Last weekend, he had on Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and Eric Schmidt's involved with Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, uh, in the Department of Defense. He tries to help. And he had a 
little monologue on the capabilities that Ukraine is using with uncrewed or unmanned systems. And they're doing it very effectively. And Eric Schmidt has written about and is a fan of swarm tactics with unmanned systems. And certainly you can say that the Ukrainians are doing it. The Russians are doing it too. And they're using Iranian drones to terrorize uh, the Ukrainian people, both at sea and ashore. But the Ukrainians are doing it back to them. They've hit Sevastopol several times. They've hit other targets. I mean, there have been these mysterious drones that have targeted the Kremlin. So they have a long reach. And this is kind of a case study in drone warfare. Again, asymmetric, part of an anti-access area denial strategy. So I can't say at this time that the Russians have dominated the Black Sea. I think it's probably a draw. But could I ask you what you think the West and NATO, United States, should be doing collectively that we are not presently doing, uh, specifically in two areas. One is to, I mean, respond directly to Russian actions in order to, you know, protect ourselves, deter future altercations in the Black Sea. And secondly, what we should be doing to help Ukraine to actually address this problem more holistically. So, so I think all of us on the podcast were elated at the sinking of the Moskva, but we haven't seen you know similar successes again in, in in the Black Sea. So, so what is exactly is the sort of constraint on the Ukrainian side that prevents them from really you know dealing with this problem more decisively and once and for all that we could help them address? Yeah, I think Admiral Nishpapa has also made the statement. There, there's a big discussion about the transfer of the F-16, whether it be NATO countries who fly the F-16 who are willing to transfer that aircraft or provide training in that aircraft, or the United States who actually builds and sustains the F-16 for us and for our allies and partners. The F-16 is a great airplane to conduct suppression of enemy air defenses, but it can also suppress enemy maritime activity and push adversarial ships further out, you know, of this cordon of anti-access area denial that I described that's pushed the Russians away from Sevastopol and all the way over to Novorossiysk. So that's one piece that's missing. The big problem, if you go back to December of 2021, and when I was Sixth Fleet Commander and also Commander of Naval Forces Europe and Allied Joint Force Command, Naples for the southern flank of NATO, we did exercises in the Black Sea all the time. So we had this one exercise called Sea Breeze that was with the Ukrainians. I did a NPR interview with Greg Myers yesterday, and I sent him a picture of myself and the Prime Minister of Ukraine, Prime Minister Yatsunyuk, and Ambassador Jeff Pyatt walking along the pier next to the Hemet Sahadashny, which is their flagship. They were very proud of that ship. It was an old FSB patrol frigate, and it always came out and operated with us. Always spit and polish. Everything on that ship was shine bright and brass or copper and everything was painted and they were always underway on time. They're very, very proud to put their best people on that ship. And in December of 2021, we had three ships in the Black Sea, three American ships. We had the command ship, USS Mount Whitney. We had the USS Arleigh Burke, first of the class, DDG-51 of the Burke class destroyers. And we had USS Porter, one of the destroyers from Rota, Spain, operating in the Black Sea with allies and partners. Civilian authority trumps military uniforms, so there was a decision, a policy decision made to leave the Black Sea in December of 2021 because it was heating up. And nobody wanted to exacerbate or push Putin across the line and cause him to invade Ukraine. Guess what? It happened, regardless of whether those ships were there or not. And then what happened? And then after February 
Turks kind of woke up and said, this is pretty serious. So the Turkish foreign minister came in and said, look, he made kind of a soft declaration and said, we, we'd appreciate it if all non-riparian states, I love that term, you know, if you're not a member of a Black Sea nation, then keep out, keep your warships out. Now, the United States has honored that. Technically speaking, the Russians have too. I mean, they sent these alligator amphibious ships in prior to the outbreak of hostilities. Smart move on their part. They did it through Montreux legally, administratively. But when Moscow was sunk, their total of four Slava-class cruisers in that class of ships that were all built in Mykolaiv shipyard, ironically, and they chose not to push another one into the Black Sea, probably a little bit out of fear because they want to lose another one. Those are capital ships. I mean, Moscow is one of Putin's favorite platforms, almost like having an oligarch shot to himself. He can go out and do naval parades and naval reviews, but it's no longer part of their order of battle. So my point is, I don't think we ever should have left. And if we hadn't left the Black Sea, then there would not be this need for my favorite expression, the new normal. Uh, you know, how do we get back in there and establish a new normal? Well, if we hadn't left, there wouldn't have to be a new normal. Now, albeit you got to go by the rules of the Montreux Convention, but there's been a lot of discussion about Turkey over the course of the last couple of years regarding the S-400, having a foot in the door with the Russians. I maintain that there is no NATO without Turkey and no Turkey without NATO. I mean, it's a very essential partner and ally. I had a contingent of Turks, as well as Greeks, in my headquarters in Naples, Italy. I had two flag officers from each of those contingents. There were disagreements, but we worked through it. They were very professional on both sides. And I never had an issue with a Montreux request to put a U.S. warship in the Black Sea unless I screwed up the paperwork and it was on me. The Turks were always professional about this. And we were down in Marmaris all the time. It was a place where we sent aircraft carriers to show the flag and also to give sailors some liberty. So, you know, I think the Turks have been professional in administrating the Montreux Accords, but I think it's time that we have a dialogue about the Montreux Accords and maybe open it up and make it easier to get ships into the Black Sea. We should crawl, walk, and run to get back in and to establish a presence there. I think the most important asset that NATO could put in the Black Sea right now are minesweepers. And NATO has these standing NATO maritime groups. During the, the crisis, the outbreak of hostilities, it, it used to be very difficult to get nations to volunteer forces to go to the SNMG. So there's an SNMG-1 and SNMG-2, and there's also an SNMCMG, long acronym, military loves acronyms, the Standing NATO Mine Countermeasures Group. So it's a group of minesweepers. I exercised them up in ball tops in 2015, 2016. Germans are really good at this. The Poles are good at it. The Dutch are good at it. A lot of people have minesweepers. And we should get the SNMCMG back into the Black Sea. I don't consider that a threat. You know, I think a Russian warship could be hit by a loose mine as easily as that Romanian minesweeper that I talked about earlier. So I consider the SNMCMG's mission to be more humanitarian. You know, the Romanian CNO told me recently that I think there's over 60 mines that have been swept that uh, are loose in the Black Sea in the last year. That's pretty serious. We've created a problem now. It's going to last for 100 years. World War One, Baltic Black Sea, lots of mines. World War Two, Baltic Black Sea, lots of mines. And here we are doing ball tops in 2015 and 2016, and we're finding some of these World War One and World War Two mines popping to the surface or in exercise areas where we're going to drop anchor. And we had to get rid of them. 
So it'll haunt you for a long time. And we've now proliferated or prolonged that crisis of mines and loose mines in the Black Sea for, you know, 10, 20, 50, maybe even longer than that. So it's a problem. And if you establish a NATO presence with the SNMCMG first, then it gets everybody used to the fact that, oh, they're back. And like I said, we never should have left. It's going to require some collaboration and cooperation with the Turks, but I can't imagine why they would object. Well, they're Turks, first of all. I wanted to push you a little on this, if I could, and suggest that the status quo ante is perhaps that we need to go beyond that. I mean, we have learned through the experience of the war that something like we, we need not just anti-access capabilities to deny Russian you know, surface or subsurface operations. We need to positively ensure freedom of navigation, especially for commercial vessels as well as combat ships, and that we ought to be looking for workarounds to get there as fast as possible. We could use some riparian fleets of our own. I mean, building up a Romanian Navy or after war ends appropriate or as soon as possible, a Ukrainian Navy, but also having more permanent, you know, maritime patrol aircraft, either manned or unmanned, so on and so forth, so that we can ensure that the sea is not merely demined and safe for U.S. and NATO warships to operate and exercise, but also obviously for commercial and grain shipments. It also seems to me that talking about enabling or financing or, you know, creating Romanian and Ukrainian Navy would not only, I mean, that would put some pressure on the Turks to be more cooperative in regard to Montreux. It would take some of the leverage away from the Turks in terms of having that chokehold on the Bosphorus and the access to the open med. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if, and I'm, those are just sort of off the top of the head suggestions, but what do you think about the idea of going beyond what the status quo was to ensure that this vital waterway is no longer under such a dire threat from the Because even in the best outcome, the Russians will still be able to cause havoc and mischief in the Black Sea, even from land-based systems. And that just seems to me to be an unacceptable threat to try to live with over the long haul. Sorry for the long and leading question, and I hope there's a question there beyond, don't you agree with me? But I'd be interested in your view about what a more durable and opportune Black Sea structure would look like. Yeah, well, Giselle, you're singing music to my ears. It's, you know, it's almost like you're spouting Alfred Thayer Mahan and sea lines of communication and freedom of navigation. So I love it. Uh, so I will agree with you. But you brought up a whole bunch of great points that are worthy of deep diving on. So freedom of navigation. You know, what do you do about commercial vessels? How do we restore peace and security and you know make the Black Sea like every other body of water in the world, the global commons, and we use that term loosely, but it means, you know, it's for everybody. It's not for one nation. And the Black Sea shall not be Russia's lake any more than the Baltic. And, you know, some people have used the term, well, now that Sweden and Finland are going to be part of NATO, then the Baltic is, is a NATO lake. I don't subscribe to that. Some people do. I think that when you do that, you just exacerbate one or more parties and, you know, look at Kaliningrad in the uh, Baltic Sea, 
and it has probably the highest density of weapons of any piece of land on earth other than maybe North Korea. So I think to say it the way you did, that we must restore freedom of navigation is exactly the way to go. And you're right. When all is said and done, the Russians can still make trouble in the Black Sea. Frankly, I watched with interest as they brought almost the entire White Sea fleet down into the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. It's like 35, 36 warships during the beginning of the campaign. And they can do that because they have the waterways that feed into those larger bodies of water. So they're always going to be able to make trouble there. So eventually we have to come to a cessation of hostilities. And then again, my favorite term established a a new normal. And what is that? What's that look like? Let's talk about the interim period here now. So we've got this problem with breakdown of the grain agreement. And what do we do with bulk carriers to get out of the Black Sea into the Bosphorus and to the countries and third world countries that need the food supplies? Really, really tough problem. And the Russians have threatened to sink those bulk carriers. They do have a right under international law to search them to see if ships going into Ukraine are bringing weapons because those two nations are belligerents. But it's outrageous to think that they would randomly sink a bulk carrier with civilian mariners on board. That's World War One and World War Two stuff, and that should not stand. Now, they haven't done it yet. What they have done is they've gone after the grain import, and they're doing enormous damage there, not just destroying grain stocks, and taking you know food out of the mouths of underprivileged and third world nations that need it, but they're also destroying equipment. They're destroying conveyor belts and cranes and infrastructure and ports that will be damaged and won't be able to be repaired for years. I think it's going to cost a trillion euros to put Ukraine back together with all the damage that Russia has done, and Russia should pay you know the majority of those costs. But good luck with that. It's going to be the Western powers that come in and do that after the cessation of hostilities. So we still got to figure out, and you know, the Russians are profiting from this attack on facilities in Odessa and other places where grain is stored because who has the greatest supply of grain other than Ukraine? The Russians do. So the Russians are having a uh, Russia-Africa conference right now, and Putin is telling the African leaders, don't worry about it. We're going to give you the grain for free out of the goodwill of the Russian people. And then eventually he'll sell it and he'll skirt around international sanctions in order to get money. China needs grain as well. And there's been grain deals that have been going back and forth between Russia and China that are outside of the sanctions accords. So in my What's Plan B article in War on the Rocks, we thought about ideas up at the Naval War College last year that might work if this thing fell apart. And one is, let's go to some third parties, you know, some non-aligned states, states that might be affected by the need for grain, the lack of grain, that might be that have a navy that might be willing to go in and do escort operations. And this would have to be agreed to, of course, by the belligerents and by Turkey. And I think Tunisia is one of those nations. Morocco is one of those nations. Egypt is certainly one of those nations, has a very capable Navy. And then a country that's involved in UN food programs all over the world that does a lot of goodwill, that has a a spectacular Navy, Brazil. They were in Lebanon for a very long time. The Brazilians are just terrific mariners. And I think you know, they could lead something and they certainly are part of BRICS and they can talk to the Russians and perhaps talk a little sense into them. That's going to have to be a UN effort and a monumental effort. It's going to take time, but I don't see us even exploring those ideas. And I think we should. As far as other options, you know, you could try to sneak bulk carriers into the territorial waters of Romania and Bulgaria. I've thought about that. Wouldn't that be a plum target for Vladimir Putin and his Navy to strike from over the horizon long distance with potentially a hypersonic weapon or a cruise missile? These these ships can't defend themselves. So now if you sink a civilian bulk carrier inside the territorial waters of a NATO ally, is that an Article 5? 
does that then lead to a broader conflict and World War III? And I think the cooler heads in this administration and in Brussels in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization are concerned about that. And so that's why you haven't seen a leap to, yeah, let's just run them through territorial waters and we'll sneak them out through the Bosphorus because there are are potential consequences that we could walk into there. And it's pretty hard to back out of that once something bad happens. That's a sad commentary, but, you know, I think political leadership and policymakers need to consider that. So on the last piece, you know, what do you do to try to restore peace and security in the Black Sea, rebuild a Ukrainian Navy, balance the balance of power in the Black Sea out so that Ukraine can defend itself? Well, we were trying, you know, after the illegal annexation of Ukraine in 2014, I was the Sixth Fleet Commander, and one of our responsibilities was to help the Ukrainians in rebuilding a Navy. They lost 85% of their fleet in Sevastopol when the Russians took over. The Russians sunk some of those ships, and then they assumed or assimilated some of those ships. They split the Ukrainian Navy, and families were split, those living down in Sevastopol. I remember a story about two brothers, one who went with Russia, one who went with Ukraine, grandkids on both sides, uh, grandparents living in Crimea that then could not see the son and the offspring who were in Ukraine. And it was just, uh, you know, kind of devastating. So we tried the training piece in Seabreeze. We brought Admiral Voronchenko to the United States. Uh, He shopped around Baltimore Harbor. He picked uh, four 110-foot island-class Coast Guard cutters where the Ukrainian Navy trained on. And then those were sea-lifted to the port of Odessa and commission. I remember sending my chief of staff up to do that in Odessa. The problem with those ships were they were lightly armed. They didn't have a deck gun and they were for training uh, mostly. They were not warships. And in fact, we had used them as Coast Guard cutters, kind of stripped any offensive capability of them. That was probably the wrong answer. At that time, we probably should have beefed up all of Ukraine's defenses and given them more weapon systems to defend themselves Perhaps that would have blunted the offensive on 24 February 2022. Now, they've lost pretty much all those ships. And the tragic thing about Hemet Saganashny, which is the flagship of the Ukrainian Navy, is that President Zelensky gave the order to scuttle it in Mykolaiv Harbor because they were afraid it was going to fall into Russian hands. So they really have nothing in their Navy except some small patrol craft and this anti-access area denial capability that they have so innovatively and ingeniously used, executed against the Russians. Now, there is an order out there for ships. Uh, I think that the French have options. The United States certainly has options for these Mark VI class patrol craft. These are small patrol craft. They're not big capital ships like Hemet Sakadashny. But Admiral Nishpapa said that they're uh, preparing to buy the Ada class Hetman Ivan Mazipa Corvette from the Turks. Uh, they're supposed to be ready in 2024. A really nice looking ship. Uh, your viewers or your listeners can't see it, but I've got the picture right here. And it has a 76 millimeter gun, torpedoes, and harpoon. Now, the big question is uh, if it's ready in 2024, how do you get it to the port of Odessa? And this is beneficial for the Turkish economy, obviously. And I'd like to see. A couple of those ships go into the inventory of the Ukrainian Navy. So that's a possibility. We'll have to see how it all plays out. And somebody asked me yesterday, well, do you think that, sh- that ship, that Corvette, would be a suitable platform for escort operations of civilian bulk carriers? Yeah, with a 76-millimeter gun, torpedoes and harpoon, anti-ship uh, cruise missiles? Absolutely, I do. 
And I think that's where you have to start in rebuilding the Ukrainian Navy. Look at Georgia. After the 2008 Georgia-Russia war, uh, they lost a significant part of their coastline when they lost Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And then afterwards, uh, there's been a lot of work done in their uh, port facilities in Batumi. And they decided and NATO decided and collectively the West decided probably best that you design, you have a design, not for a big Navy, but for a Coast Guard to defend what coast you have left. And that's what Georgia did. And they've been very professional and very effective at patrolling their coast, but they don't go out and project power into the Black Sea. So there's got to be a strategy for Ukraine, a maritime strategy, and there should be a broader Black Sea strategy. And let me end on this as to this part of your question, Giselle. What is the Black Sea strategy? Do we have one? You know, Senator Jean Shaheen and Senator Romney have a Black Sea strategy of actually when they were writing it, uh, we got to look at it at the Center for Maritime Strategy, where I sit today, and we made some suggestions, and some of those suggestions were assimilated. And I think it's a great document. It's sitting out there as a yeah, bill, but we have all these other distractions in government right now and a lack of bipartisanship, and the focus is not on the Black Sea. But there's a pretty good Black Sea strategy out there. Now, it's an American written strategy. you got to sell it to your allies and partners. But I don't think that dialogue has taken place in the hallowed halls of NATO headquarters in Brussels. But it's unfair to say that NATO hasn't done anything. It's done a lot. I mean, look at the support for the Ukrainian armed forces. And look what the Ukrainian armed forces have done with this support. You know, there's kids dying on the battlefield every day. They deserve enormous credit for their ability to push back and their ability to sustain this fight over a long period of time and their bravery and their courage. But in the broader, bigger picture, what's the end state and what's the strategy for the Black Sea region? And you can go ahead and expand that to the land, the air, and the sea. I'm happy to be here today talking about the maritime because we almost never talk about the maritime in the Black Sea. And this term in the Black Sea region, the, the middle term, the middle word is sea. So we got to bring maritime back into the dialogue. And the Eastern Front podcast is helping us do that. So thank you. Actually, you you mentioned the bill of Shaheen and Romney, and they re-pushed that bill today, in, waiting for the White House and the U.S. government to issue the Black Sea strategy that the government is a bit late on. So I think we're all waiting to see what that looks like firsthand and then hopefully add to it and, and develop it. I want to ask you, I guess, as we're wrapping up about this middle road that you alluded to in formulating Black Sea strategy, if you'd like, between what the Ukrainians are doing now in one form and what they could be doing after the war and how, what kind of lessons in the maritime domain other Black Sea countries, NATO countries, Romania and Bulgaria particularly, could be looking at. I think it was the other day, this week for sure, that um, the Ukrainian Prime Minister Shmuhal was announcing one billion for the first worldwide, what he calls fleet of maritime drones. And that's small capabilities, right? That's building into what you mentioned a few times and what the Ukrainians, I think, were trying to conceptualize between before the full-scale invasion as something called mosquito fleet. And some of the questions that I keep hearing 
uh, around Bulgaria and Romania are. So why would we be investing into larger maritime capabilities when they run the risk of being attacked, destroyed by Russia, especially after lessons learned of the Moskva? On the other hand, you mentioned, you know, we could sneak stuff in. When we're looking at NATO territory, we know that now we know now that the Patriots are working, including against the hypersonic missiles. So wouldn't that be a form of anti-access area denial? I guess what I'm trying to ask you in short form is how can we think in the case of Ukraine, where you've been doing a lot of work supporting their strategy, and what kind of lessons can countries like Romania and Bulgaria learn to be able to bridge the gap from drone warfare, small capabilities to a fully-fledged maritime security strategy that would build into potentially deterrence of Russian forces? Very good question indeed. Right. You bring up so many good points, Ilya. I want to key on the Mosquito fleet, but let's just talk about what does the Ukrainian Navy look like when the dust settles a year from now, two years from now? Does it look like big ships like Hemet Sagarashny? Does it look like drones, unmanned systems? Does it look like small ships like this Ada-class Corvette that I described that's being built down in Turkey? That's very capable, by the way. So I think the right people are thinking through this. And again, I go back to Admiral Nishpapa's article in Proceedings. And he echoed what the great naval historian Nick Lambert said to me about a year and a half ago on a podcast where he said, you know, naval officers, naval historians, they, they long for the great battles at sea, the Trafalgar's, the, the Midways, the turning port, but that's probably not going to happen again. And Admiral Nishpapa says that here relative to the Black Sea, he said combat actions at sea, however... Even in a maritime theater as small as Northwestern Black Sea, do not involve constant direct clashes or artillery duels between ships. I agree with him. Now, back when I took over in uh, Naples in October of 2017, one of the things that I did, and I wish I'd known all of you, I would have invited you to these things. We did regional ambassadors conferences. I'd bring in American ambassadors and naval leadership from the host nations of those ambassadors. So, for example, when we did a Black Sea conference uh, around November of 18, we brought in the CNO's political officer, uh, Polad Victoria Krikorian, who's a former Ukrainian in this country for many, many years. Very smart. She used to work for me in Naples. Brought in uh, the U.S. ambassadors from Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, and Georgia, and Turkey. And then we had CNOs from the Ukrainian Navy, the Georgian Coast Guard, Bulgaria uh, Navy, and Romanian Navy, and Turkish Navy. And we all got together and we talked about the region, the problems, the need for a strategy. We had a discussion about a Black Sea flotilla that didn't go very far. The Turks were not very attuned to that. They did, didn't support that. Admiral Voronchenko was the Ukrainian CNO at the time, and he stood up and announced that Ukraine will not be deterred just because it lost the preponderance of its forces, its maritime forces in Sevastopol after Crimea was annexed, and that he had created this little thing called the Mosquito Fleet, and that they would boldly go anywhere in the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov. Well, shortly after that, he sent three ships 
up into the Sea of Azov that charged through the Kerch Straits, and that was November of 2018. Russian FSB ships, brand new ships, there's videotape online, they look pretty good, attacked the Mosquito Fleet. They rammed the tug that was in accompaniment with the Mosquito Fleet, put a hole in it, fired on the two attack craft, and those commanding officers wisely turned to the Russians boarded those ships. They took 27 officers, chiefs, and sailors prisoner, charged them criminally, and sent them to a dungeon in Moscow for two years before there was a prisoner exchange. Complete violation of the Geneva Convention. These guys were wearing uniforms. You know, this was a military, unprovoking act just to sail through the Kerch Straits uh, in freedom of navigation to get to Mariupol. And it failed because the Russians had greater preponderance of force. So in building a maritime strategy post-conflict, I think you have to think about, was the Mosquito Fleet effective? Were those ships big enough to project power and do what they needed to do? Perhaps the idea is go a little bigger with the Ada-class Corvettes. Perhaps the idea is, well, we don't want to put you know, navies cost money. We're finding out in this country. It's a huge debate about the cost of an individual ship, a submarine, an aircraft carrier, how long it takes, a 10-year acquisition plan. So the first thing the Ukrainians have to do is they have to prioritize. And in their strategy for reconstruction, this estimated bill, I just kind of pull out of the air of a trillion euros, how are they going to spend that money if they get it from donors or they can raise it themselves? How are they going to spend that money? What's the priority? Is it roads, schools, housing, I would think, infrastructure, rehabilitation? Can you imagine the psychological toll that will eventually come out of this war with the people who have been terrorized over the course of the last two years? Little kids going to school with missiles flying, people being killed in their apartments, uh, just the horrors of trench warfare. So you got to put a lot of money into that. And then how much is left over for defense or projection of power in the maritime? How much do they need? And how much can the allies do to help them with collective defense? Big question. Does Ukraine become a member of NATO? If it does become a member of NATO, then it's going to get a security guarantee and an umbrella over both the maritime, their economic zone, territorial waters, uh, their airspace. There'll be air policing and also over their land. Then they'll be able to participate in NATO exercises. There'll be a lot of NATO people in the country and they'll get more intelligence sharing as members of NATO. So that factors in to how much they have to spend. Of course, you know, NATO will tell them we got to spend 2% of your GDP. Well, I think they've exceeded that. Check that block off. And then how much aid are they going to get from everybody else? And back to what Eric Schmidt said. I agree with him. He's a heck of a lot smarter than me. I think that the Ukrainians are writing the book in uncrewed or unmanned defense of their territory, whether that's over water or over land, and that the rest of us are going to learn a lot from that. You know, I studied the war in Nagorno-Karabakh pretty carefully before this conflict began, and I said to myself, are we prepared for drone defense against our own forces? And certainly that question is still out there to be resolved. And thank God the Ukrainians are our friends, and we're friends to them because I'm sure they'll share all these lessons learned, and that's going to go into... U.S. strategy as well to determine whether or not we want to spend less and buy cheaper platforms like unmanned systems to do the job that much more expensive manned platforms are doing today, or do we want to have some kind of a hybrid mix? The United States Navy is experimenting with this. We've been doing it in the Arabian Gulf through the Task Force 59, the Unmanned Task Force. 
and we've now expanded that to the fourth fleet. Admiral Jim Aiken was one of my Desron commanders, and he is very skillfully leading that charge down in counter-drug operations for Southcom. And so it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of the lessons learned from that, what comes out of the lessons learned from Ukraine, and how we decide how appropriately to spend either our money or the Ukrainians spend their own money on building a future Navy. But right now they're starting from scratch. They've got pretty much nothing. So it's a whiteboard that's blank and they're going to have to fill it in. Admiral, just to wrap up, I'd like you to put your blue suit back on for a minute or two. And I never took it off. <laughs> yeah, I'm like Admiral Ricker. I'm just sitting here wearing a suit. I'm kidding, of course. Yeah, I'll just take it off. Okay, okay. I opened the door to that one for sure. And ask you, I mean... You sort of alluded to it in your last comments, and certainly the Sea Service has struggled to figure out, you know, what it's supposed to do for the last 30 years. And it's just, you know, sort of itself organizationally pivoted from its literal L-I-T-T-O-R-L period back to a more blue water posture and orientation. So if you had to say... Imagine 10 years from now when we were looking at what the Navy had done structurally, procurement-wise, operationally, to digest the lessons of the Russo-Ukrainian War. What would we look for and what do you think the senior service leadership is seeing when it reads the headlines every day? Yeah, Giselle, I mean, you kind of struck a nerve there. Before I talk about Ukraine and lessons learned there, let's just talk about the lessons we've learned about ourselves. And so we got wrapped up after 9-11 in Homeland Defense Forward. Let's play the away game and not the home game. Let's make sure that America is never attacked or experiences a sucker punch like we did on 9-11. And so we took that fight to Iraq. We took that fight to Afghanistan. And it was clear what we were doing in Afghanistan for about the first year. And then it became blurred after that for the next 19 years. And for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and trillions of dollars of both our treasure and our blood of our young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. We had our boots in the sand and, quite frankly, our heads in the sand. And meanwhile, China slowly plodded along. And now they're in the most impressive naval armaments race I can remember in my 40 years. And I started out as a Cold Warrior with us and NATO against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. China has an incredible anti-access area denial program of its own with ballistic missiles that are intended to keep the United States Navy out. China has developed its own DF-17 hypersonic missile. The Russians have developed Zircon. We do not yet have one because our attentions were focused elsewhere on the global war on terror. And we were trying to be the world cop. And meanwhile, our adversaries were like, ha, look at the Americans. They're spending their treasure on diversions. And while they're doing that, we're going to get stronger. We're going to get stronger economically, and we're going to get stronger militarily. And someday we will challenge them, and we will knock them off this top dog status that they have, both economically and militarily in the world. And that fight is coming soon. And so to your point, we adapt to the environment that we live in. 20 years ago, we thought that literal warfare was the way to go, that, you know, the next conflict would probably be in the Arabian Gulf. We had two carrier strike groups there for 
a decade and we exhausted ourselves and our sailors and our ships. And now we've pivoted and uh, we recognize that the pacing threat is China and Western Pacific. And we can't go it alone. So that's why we're trying our best to try to create alliances. We're trying to bring India on board. Prime Minister Modi was just here. Lots of good discussion there. We've uh, reinvigorated the Quad and we have created AUKUS, which is more than just an agreement that provides nuclear submarines to Australia. It's a much broader geopolitical agreement. Today, I read this morning that perhaps New Zealand would join. Perhaps someday Canada will join. Maybe we'll call it caucus. Perhaps the Japanese will join. Hey, the more the better. I mean, they don't have to have a submarine. They can be part of this this alliance that pushes back against illegal aggression and, you know, stealing of rock shoals and islands in the South China Sea just because somebody doesn't agree with international norms and standards of behavior. So what do we take away from this war in Ukraine? I started with the time to arm Ukraine was 2014. We missed that opportunity. We missed several signals. The boiling frog scenario in the Black Sea is the Russians built up forces there, completed the Kerch Bridge, strangled Mariupol, wouldn't allow traffic to pass through, attacked the Mosquito Fleet, carpet bombed the Northern Black Sea with notice to mariners intended to notify civilian mariners and other militaries of an exercise that lasts about two weeks. We're going to go bomb this part of the ocean, mine this part of the ocean, do a submarine torpex, and then it's done. And we publish another one that says, okay, all clear. You you can pass through now. Nope. They left those notice to mariner restrictions down for over a year. And it was a precursor to what happened on 24 February 2022, the invasion and illegal attack, or as Putin calls it, a special military operation. I call it a war, an unprovoked war against Ukraine. We missed all those signals. So First things first, that lesson is arm them early, go ugly early. Two, pay attention to the intelligence and analyze the intelligence and come up with the conclusions. And they may be different. There may be different courses of action or different conclusions, but let's let's parse those conclusions and make sure that we know what the adversary is doing. And the third thing is Bridge Colby talks about, and, and so does Corey Shockey, they talk about do we have a deterrent strategy? Do we, do we really, you know, does integrated deterrence, which is the new buzzword, the national security strategy, does that really work? Did it work to deter Vladimir Putin? Well, there's no way you can say yes, because he attacked Ukraine anyway. So do we want to deter or do we want to wait until hostilities have broken out and then punish the adversary for what they have done? So people a lot smarter than me would say, well, we didn't deter, so now we're into the punishment phase. But the punishment phase has been incremental. So for the longest time, we said we couldn't give them tanks. We said we couldn't give them high-performance jets, old Russian jets like the MiG-29. Oh, no, we can't do that. We said we couldn't give them you know, lots of artillery or uh, HIMARS. We gave them all that stuff. And then we gave them armored vehicles to help them with the counteroffensive. We eventually got to the point where we said, okay, why did we hesitate? I think we're worried about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. He hasn't used a tactical nuclear weapon. So there's some hesitancy there on the part of the Russian leadership or Putin himself to do that. So why haven't we given them a TACMS? Perhaps we should. Why haven't we given them the F-16 for suppression of enemy air defenses or attacks against adversaries, maritime elements at sea. Perhaps we should. And so a lesson out of this, the big picture lesson is 
don't just incrementally give stuff to your ally or your partner. Give them what they need. And then finally, I will say, decide what you want the end state to be and stick to it. I have no idea what the end state is here. Is it to win or is it to slow roll the conflict until everybody gets back to the peace table and then we draw a line? Seems like it's the latter and not the former. And I think we're at a very uh, critical crossroads here where the Ukrainians could actually win this if they had the right equipment, just my opinion. And the opinion of others, like my friend Ben Hodges. Certainly, Admiral Jerry Fogo, you have been preaching to the choir. And if we can add our two cents to what you've said more eloquently than but we keep repeating for one and a half or over one and a half years now, it is also that while we do not know what the end game is and what our objective is, we also do not consider and do not address how much the costs are mounting in every single way, whether it's Ukrainian lives or it is the costs of using punishment instead of deterrence militarily or in commercial. And just to add, it was popping up on my screen while we were recording The insurance for ships in the northwest of the Black Sea, not just Ukraine, but also the others, has been going up 35% just over the last week. And so I, I guess this is new data that is confirming what you were saying. But to wrap up on good note, as we're always trying to do. No, I'm, I've given up on that, but it is kind of our gimmick to try to end the episode. Thank you so much for joining us, for talking us patiently through what Black Sea strategy, maritime strategy would look like and giving us a lot of food for thought beyond the Eastern Front when it comes to maritime security overall. So thank you a lot for joining us. Well, Yulia Dalvor, Sahar and Giselle, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy to talk with you today and be on the Eastern Front Podcast. Thank you for allowing me to come in as the Dean of the Center for Maritime Strategy of the Navy League and pontificate about the maritime, which is probably, of all the domains, the most ignored in this conflict. And again, I go back to what I said. We talk about the Black Sea region. The middle word in the Black Sea region is sea. That's the maritime. And we've got to pay attention there. What's happening in the Black Sea right now, I'll, I'll put it this way. I predicted that what happened in the Sea of Azov with the strangulation of Mariupol before the outbreak of hostilities, if that protocol worked for Vladimir Putin, he would, and I'm on record as saying this many times, he would export that protocol to the rest of the Black Sea region, and he did. So do we now expect him to export this protocol in the Black Sea region? You started with the question, Has he created effectively a blockade of the Black Sea region? If he thinks he's been successful, will that happen in another body of water like the Baltic or the Arctic? I worry more about the Arctic than I do the Baltic. And I think that could be the next source of tension between NATO, the United States, China, and Russia. And so we cannot let this stand in the Black Sea. We cannot allow precedent to be set. So thanks very much for what you're doing and keeping the maritime in the crosshairs. I really appreciate it. And I would add just one thing uh, for anybody out there listening. If you want to log on to our website, it's www.centerformaritimestrategy.org. We've got a podcast, The Maritime Nation. We've got an online journal, The Mock, and we have a newsletter. And you're all welcome to sign up. And it's all free, no charge. Thank you. From me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends. She's Donnelly and...
Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. And to stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.